This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire with you for the whole of this fortnight. Today, I know it's the depth of August, but I'm mounting a defence of silly season and why it isn't so silly after all. You'll get the answer to that one in just a moment. But first, it's time for our columnist panel. No Robert Crampton today, so I'm talking to Carol Midgley and Alice Thompson. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's Wednesday. No Robert Crampton, though. Alice, do you know where Robert is? Well, from today, it looks like he's doing a bikini shot, doesn't it? He is. I'll never unsee that in times two, the sight of Robert Crampton in his budgie smugglers. But he's going to do another one, I think, because he thinks he's lost weight now. Really? Mm. He needs to update the Robert Crampton underwear file picture. Oh, God. I mean, it's amazing he's earned a living from you know, posing in various states of undress and fake tans. How are you, Alice? I'm very well, thank you. So we've got Alice Thompson. In the absence of Robert Crampton, we've got Carol Midgley instead. Hello, Carol. Hello. Morning. Uh, Great to have you. Uh, Have you got any views on uh, Robert Crampton's swimwear? (laughs) Well, I think think Alice is right. I think he has lost weight recently. So we look forward to the new... And I think he uses... um, Is it fake bake or something? So we look forward to that photo shoot very soon. Imminently. Yeah. Uh, If if Times 2 are listening, get a move on. You've got an audience of dozens here who are very, very keen uh, to see Robert Crampton uh, in, his, uh, in his swimwear. Uh, right, speaking of, speaking of swimwear, impeccable segue, Alice, you've written your column today about toxic masculinity, Andrew Tate, and a man who does look good in a pair of swimming trunks on the basis of what we see on the big screen, uh, Ryan Gosling, a.k.a. Ken. Uh, yeah, I have written about the fact that last year it was all Andrew Tate and everyone was very worried about it, parents in particular with uh, younger boys because they'd become so obsessed by him. And it was all uh, Andrew Tate as the influencer and he had this terrible way of talking about women, particularly sort of slap, slap, slap and promoting rape culture. And uh, he then got locked up in Romania and he has now been let out on, uh, well, on bail, but... Um, he has got a whole series of indictments against him. And um, what I'm writing about is that Ken has now taken over, and that's great. And Ryan Gosling is now the new hero, really. So for those who haven't seen the film, if there's anyone still out there who hasn't seen Barbie, what's the positive case 
for Ken as an icon of positive masculinity? Well, he's quite a nice guy, actually, and he quite likes, uh, well, anyone's going to like Barbie because she is, as Margot, uh, very good-looking, uh, Margot Robbie, and um, she is just the kind of guy that likes hanging out on the beach, has quite a lot of friends, doesn't mind being in the back of the car. You know, Andrew Tate wouldn't let women drive. And uh, Ken is never going to do brilliantly, but at the same time, he's quite a nice sidekick for Barbie and actually gets confident by the end. Yeah, indeed. A bit too confident, mm. not to ruin it for anyone. Yeah, Andrew Tate, significantly to the right of Mohammed bin Salman in terms of his attitude to female motorists. Uh, Carol, do you agree? Is, uh, is Ryan Gosling's Ken an icon of positive masculinity? I, I think he's a, good, he's a good position to be in, in, in that he's, he, he kind of presents the idea that you can have a six-pack that's all glistening and bronze, but also not believe that women over 35 should have a bag over their head, which, by the way, is what um, Donald Trump once said. Well, not bag over your head, but he said, 35 is checkout time for women. And I think, I think Andrew Tate thinks it's even younger. So there's a certain type of man who, who doesn't like the older, you know, older, even though know, 35 is not old, but, you know, he doesn't like, um, doesn't see older women as attractive in any way. But this shows that, you know, to have a, if you have a six-pack like Ryan Gosling and Ken, it doesn't mean you're that vain that you can, you, you know, you, you, he can't look up to Margot Robbie as Barbie. So, yes, it, I think it's quite a healthy mid, midway point. And he, re and he really does adore Margot Robbie as Barbie, if anyone, uh, for those who haven't uh, seen the film. Um, but the question, I guess, is, you know, last summer was the summer of Andrew Tate. I know a lot of teachers, we'll all know lots of teachers, who, uh, you know, constantly talk about how, teenage boys are absolutely obsessed with Andrew Tate. And, you know, while we're all watching Barbie on the big screen or, uh, you know, watching the Women's World Cup or whatever, it's on people's phones that they're still mainlining Andrew Tate's very, you know, reductive vision of masculinity. Can we ever really police that sort of thing if it's sort of teenagers watching stuff on their phones, Alice? No, but on the other hand, I think I'm quite optimistic about it now because they seem to have got over it and the toxic masculinity is almost being laughed at some of what he's doing. And he's seen as quite a sad, pathetic figure and people have gone back to his home in Luton and... You know, he wasn't really liked at school. And then, you know, it's sort of bravura, kind of that sense of, I don't know, that that kind of um, I'm all man doesn't really kind of bode well now this summer. And that's what I quite like. I think the younger generation, I was amazed it's almost 50-50 going to this film of men, women. It's not just all girls in pink. You know, my three sons went to it. My husband went to it. They all thought it was quite funny. My daughter went to it in Paris and said all the men were laughing there. And they're quite into their masculinity. Yeah, they are. They are. <laughs> Very particular vision of French masculinity. What do you think, Carol, is... Uh, reports the death of, you know, Andrew Tate, greatly exaggerated? Um, well, I think that the reason Andrew Tate is so famous, one of the reasons he's so famous, is is because he's quite a rare type. I mean, I know lots of men. And I know, I don't mean that in a bad <laughs> <Yes>. way. <laughs> uh, I have known lots of men. I, I have male friends. None of them are anything like him. Um, I mean, some might want to pick up a guitar and play for four hours like Ken did in your face, but they're not like hit Andrew Tate and um, I think it's because he's an outlier or he says out loud what no one else says that he's become so famous if, if, if more men were like that he wouldn't be quite the big figure that he is so yeah I think it's I think it's there is reason to be more optimistic because he's I just don't think he's that big a deal in in the big scheme of things well speaking of men being more like Ryan Gosling's <laughs> Ken be careful what you wish for because let's revisit this awful moment Now, imagine, if you will, 
uh, Matt Hancock in clothes you'd more readily expect on an 18-year-old boy, uh, lip-syncing to that on a beach, because that's exactly what he posted on TikTok. Uh, you've written your column about this horrifying sight, Carol. Mm. Yes, it was horrifying. <laughs> Un- you know, you, you can't unsee it, and, it's, it, it, and you can't stop looking at it either. Um, yes, it's... I mean, I've written about... You know, I've, I've got to say this about Hancock. He's the columnist dream. I mean, he's he just the gift that keeps on giving. But it, I, I've, and I've written about him many times... But I think it's getting to like quite a worrying point now where why is no one intervening? Why is no one saying to him, you know, those close to him who love him, why aren't they saying, stop it, this is self-harm now? Because it's not funny, it's just cringy. Um, and that, that, I think, is his worst video to date, which is saying something. Yeah, it's a very crowded field. He's a prolific yes. TikToker. Interesting question though, Alice, is it self-harm? Because from a political perspective, I mean... It's easy to forget Matt Hancock is still an MP for now, although he doesn't have the Tory whip. But is he quite successfully, in the same way that Neil Hamilton did in the sort of 90s, reinventing himself as sort of like an object to public curiosity, a figure of fun, you know, the I'm a celebrity Matt Hancock, rather than, say, the health secretary Matt Hancock during the pandemic? Is that working for him? I think William Hague's probably a better role model. That mm. you know, he crashed out as uh, Tory leader, and then he came back, and he, you know, he took himself seriously. And I think for Matt, it's quite sad he's not taking himself seriously. I mean, he had a proper position. This was a pandemic. He was mm. the health secretary, and he's now prancing around on a beach. And it's not. I feel sorry for the children, but I feel sorry for everyone else. We, you know, we backed him during that pandemic. We had to, you know, follow him through it. And then now he's, you know, messing around, not taking anything seriously. He is an MP still, yeah, and yeah. he should. I, I do feel that he should be taking it more seriously. It, it is interesting because you see, you know, and there's the constituents in West Southwark would have no mechanism to express, express their displeasure mm. with this sort of, with this sort of behaviour. It's interesting, you know, you say three months, three years ago, uh, and fewer he was leading the nation through a pandemic, four years ago, he was running to be Prime Minister mm. uh, <laughs> to succeed Theresa May. It's, you know, it's crazy what's happened there. Um, will it work, this rehabilitation, this turning himself into a light entertainment star, Carol? Or, you know, is there just too much baggage there? No, I can't, I can't see how it can possibly work unless I am such a fogey that he is playing a, and I've just got it wrong and he's playing a long game where he's thinking, look, I'm now... On, he's got quite a lot of followers on TikTok, where, which is mainly millennials, isn't it? Mm. But maybe he'll come back at some point in 10 years, maybe. Um, we still won't be that old. Um, come back into the Tory party. Maybe he thinks that people remember him then and will vote for him because they think, oh, that's that chap who used to make me laugh on TikTok because he said his favourite chocolate bar is Kit Kat which is literally what he said in a recent video maybe he's maybe he's cleverer than us and he's thinking the long game but I just don't think so I just think he's kind of ruining any well there's no gravitas after that the yeah, gravitas I, is possible after that and it's and the pandemic scarred so many people yes that that's the main point if yes. any you know it's not like Neil Hamilton is the example I used or it's not like George Galloway pretending no. to drink milk out of Rula Lenska's hands on Celebrity Big Brother it's you know, a man who was the face of a policy that caused a lot of pain to people, Alice, sort of well, prancing I, around as if nothing happened. I think Carol said it really well in her column that actually that, that's the problem with it, that it, you know, it's fine if he wants to make a prat of himself, but it isn't fine when you think that everyone else went through that pandemic and took it really seriously. And I think that's my problem, is you always go back to that image of him sort of groping 
basically, mm. <laughs> during the day when he wasn't meant to be anywhere near anyone. You were very handsy when, you know, we were all told not to touch hands. And, you know, most people didn't go anywhere near people that they really cared about when they were dying because they weren't allowed to cause any sort of infection or go into hospitals. And, and he didn't take it seriously. I think that, that matters to people. I'm not sure he can resurrect himself in this way. If I were him, I'd go and do some good work, probably. Like John Profumo. Exactly. The well, that's going back a long way. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's it, you know the, the the closest example we have is someone who resigned literally sixty years ago, mm. then went to scrub the toilets at Toynbee Hall. There you go. Some free advice for Matt <laughs> Hancock. Now, speaking of uh, toxic masculinity and politicians, Humza Yusuf, the first minister of Scotland, has just told the crowd at the Edinburgh Fringe that he had therapy for his mental health when he became a minister, and that he wants people to tell bigots to f off. Now, that's the second time in as many days we've had a politician use, you know, industrial strength language. I'm just sort of thinking, we had Lee Anderson, we've got now Humza Yusuf. Political discourse, you know, at once both too frivolous with Matt Hancock, a little bit too coarse, or, Carol, are we to admire Humza Yusuf for being so open? Um, I think that we, we can admire him. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying that he's had... Um, I mean, maybe... He, I think the Edinburgh Fringe is somewhere where you probably can get away with that kind of language a bit more because it's more chilled. Mm. Why you would go and see, why you would go and pay £17 to see a politician at the Edinburgh Fringe, I don't know. But um, it's, it, I, I, don't, I think we can say that he is, it's totally fair enough to say that he's had, um, I think he said he had counselling for mental health a few years ago. Um, because I wasn't there, I, I remember about four or five years ago, there was a report saying that three quarters of MPs have mental health problems. I think it was somebody who was an actual MP who did that study and they, they did a survey of, of MPs in, in the House. And so it's quite, you know, they do, I've, I've just, you know, slagged off Matt Hancock. <laughs> they do take a lot of brickbats and not many bouquets. So it's, I think it's good to say that, yes. Good well, to, to, you know, to Matt Hancock about. has the hide of a rhino, so I don't think we need to worry about upsetting well, Matt, clearly, yes. Matt Hancock. Although if you are upset, Matt, do get in touch and we'll uh, give you a right <laughs> reply. Um, we're talking, you know, Carol just raised the interesting point of who would pay to see a politician at the fringe. Alice, have you ever, have you ever uh, parted with your own cash to hear, uh, for instance, Vince Cable and Jackie Smith both being interviewed at the fringe today? Is that the sort of thing you pay a tenner to see? Or Yeah, I kind of mind that because I really love the fringe and I've been quite a lot. And I think that August should be a time off for politicians mm. unless something terrible happens or there's an international emergency. I kind of don't want to hear from them. I want them to take a break because we have them the whole of the rest of the year. And the idea that they're comedy up in Edinburgh is kind of just irritating that you just you don't want them you know and they're all got something to sell it's either the party politics or it's a book or mm. it's a you know and and i think they should just back off for august i think that's the crucial point mm. isn't it although they all always look like sort of soft focus human interest stories they you know there's never there's no just there's no such thing as a free lunch mm. there's no such thing as a no. you know a, a, a appearance at the edinburgh fringe who that isn't motivated in some way you know in service of some ambition or commercial uh Commercial objective, Carol. Yes, well, um, but I can see why they do it because August is the dead zone, and it's when you're going to get in the papers, isn't it? It's when you're going to get on the news because there's no other politics, so you've got nothing to to bump you off the news schedule. So if you say something um, that you want to get out there, it's going to make headlines. Um, but yes, I, as 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 I say, it, I think I looked up and it was seventeen quid, and that's quite a lot of money, isn't it? Um, that, that is a lot of money. And when you're meant to be, because it's like we go for a little holiday, isn't it? 
Um, and I, I don't think I'd pay that. Or maybe you just decide I'm having too much fun. I need to dial it down. I'll pay 17 quid to watch Vince Cable. Although we'll look like, we'll look like idiots when the, you know, there's the Vince Cable at the fringe souvenir wraparound on tomorrow's times after uh, you know, slagging <laughs> off the idea of anyone going to watch a politician at the fringe. This is Times Radio. Now, plant-based versions of sausages, burgers and chicken nuggets have become far more prominent on supermarket shelves and restaurant menus in recent years. But it looks like the fake meat craze may be coming to an end with the company Beyond Meat, which sells all of the aforementioned, seeing its revenues drop by a third. So does this mean veganism is on the way out? Or are plant-based foodies just eating more veg instead? Abby Moulton is a food and drink writer and she's here to tell us more. Hello, Abby. Hello. So we've been told... Great for a, to be here. Great to have you. Great to have you. We've been told for a while now that meat substitutes are getting better, that you can barely tell the difference. But beyond meat sales are falling. What's going on there? What's putting people off? They have fallen. Um, I mean, the evolution of meat-free meat, if that's what we may call it, has definitely come on leaps and bounds. Um, the flavor is there and the texture is there. So in one way, yes, it has gotten better. Um, I think something really interesting about the down return in revenue is that it's been reported in the last three months. Um, and that's actually coincided with the release of a book that's gone viral. Now, I won't put anybody in hot water. I definitely am not here to say that it's because of the book. Um, but recently there's been a uh, publishing of a book called Ultra Processed People, and it's all about processed food. Um, and it certainly sparked a conversation. I think people are waking up to processed food. We're realizing that just because something looks healthy on the outside, it might say organic, it might even say the word natural somehow, um, but we need to be looking at ingredients. And I would guess that that might be playing a part in um, the trend that we're seeing, that and cost and the um, cost of living crisis. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because presumably the sort of people who would be sufficiently sort of plugged in or you know invested in what they're eating to go for beyond meat foods or meatless uh, meat vegan sort of substitutes for health reasons would then be more inclined to notice you know discussion of ultra processed food and they're sort of overexposed in that respect aren't they these sorts of brands yeah absolutely and i think if you look at the front of the packs of these kinds of foods they say things like gluten-free dairy-free soy-free vegan vegetarian um you know feed me to your children um but when we flip them over and take a closer look we find all kinds of um you know yummy sounding ingredients like maltodextrin and methyl cellulose which we've been looking at on labels for years um but it's been decades that we've been in this sort of very industrialized um food sort of era but yeah people are starting to have a look it's it's problematic that plant-based meat is actually more expensive than animal protein um, and people don't necessarily know where to turn um, we might be in uh, an era of testing and trying and seeing what feels good from an ethical and a health perspective it's not summer without a bit of methucellulose on the barbie, Abby. Uh, Carol, you're a Beyond Meat aficionado, I believe. Your fridge is always yeah. full of Beyond Meat. Are you, are you a vegan? Yeah, well, I am at home, but I've, I've stopped doing it. When I, as I said, at Giles Curran's column recently, when I go out to eat, I don't, I'm not always vegan because it's just, it's just too much effort sometimes. But yeah, I haven't eaten meat since I was a teenager in any shape or form, or fish. Wow. And Beyond Burgers 
would amazing um, new thing because they, as as you said, that they are they taste lovely. But I think yes, the main reason that they and and I've got my entire household doesn't eat meat, so with kids that's what they like. They just they just like something they can come in and have quickly. But I only we I only really eat it once or twice a week. Um, but as I think most meat eaters eat meat most days mm. that I know anyway. Um, because you are aware that it's processed. But the other thing is, it is expensive. You're right. And um, I looked up before, because two Beyond Burgers from Tesco, for instance, is £4. But four Tesco's finest beef burgers, and so that's not... You get four for, four for the same price. So it's exactly double the price. Um, you get two um, non-meat ones for the price of four meat ones, which is a cost of living crisis. If you're, if you're vegan curious... You, 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 you know, and but you're you're, you're short of money. You're not going to try at the moment. You're going to try it later. You know what I mean. So I think that's. I think the cost is a big part of it. Yeah, if but you're also, not a lifelong meat refusenik like you know Morrissey or Carol Midgley, uh, you know <laughs> price might be the sort of thing that tips you back into. Oh well, I you know I tried it. I can't really afford the indulgence of some beyond some more Beyond Meat burgers or uh, other uh, vegan burgers are available, of course. Um, Alice, why do you stand on non-meat products? I don't really like, weirdly, the kind of chew or taste of meat particularly. So I always find it weird that people want to replicate it. Uh. So I would prefer to have something that was completely different. I don't want to eat a pretend burger or a pretend chicken breast or... I just want to, you know, I prefer to have a lot more veggies. And so I find that quite difficult. And I quite like nuts, but I prefer to have them in a salad. Or So I eat meat occasionally. I eat fish occasionally. Mm. And then I eat quite a lot of veggies and quite a lot of chocolate. But I, I can't, I've never quite understood this idea of trying to replicate the thing you're getting away from. Abby, for the vegan curious or vegans who are finding that, you know, these meat substitutes are a little bit too expensive, any recommendations for what they can be substituting in instead? Well, uh, for a start, I love this term vegan curious. This is the first time I've heard this. Um, <laughs> I, I think it is. I mean, I would be with Alice from a personal perspective. I would much rather have the real thing than the fake version of it. And that kind of, for me, goes in anything. So I'd rather have real butter than a butter substitute, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I would say that if you are vegan curious and you're dipping your foot in, it might be worth having a think about why are you vegan? Why are you wanting to eat in that way? Is it for animal welfare? Is it for the environment or is it for health? Um, if it's for health, whole foods always. Um, and, you know, they're not going to taste the same as meat. You might be able to grill a really great piece of portobello mm. mushroom um, and pop it with some great sauces and loads of spices. It will still be satisfying. Um, so I think looking at whole foods that are going to be full of flavor and that have a really nice texture. And there are loads of blogs and websites. Whole, full, and whole foods full of flavor. There you go. That was Carol Midgley and Alice Thompson. Remember, you can read them both every week in The Times. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box and get yourself a digital subscription. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Redbox podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, summer in general and August in particular are traditionally known as silly season on Fleet Street. Little trade secret for you there. It's the annual journalistic free-for-all that's slap bang in the middle of the parliamentary recess when half of the country is trying to enjoy its summer holidays and in the absence of anything newsworthy to report on, journalists, not me of course, some journalists start to scrape the barrel in order to fill newsprint. On the 9th of August, 4th of August 2009 rather, the Times front page carried the headline Benson, Britain's best love carp, 1984-2009, with a picture of an angler carrying an enormous fish. But is silly season always actually that silly? Well, joining me to discuss how silly silly season actually is, is the political historian and author of the Times Political Book of the Year, The Death of Consensus, and friend of the show, Phil Tinline. Morning, Phil. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, great to have you. Uh, I feel like, you know, a bit, bit insulting to talk about how frivolous August is and then say, and now our special guest, Phil Tinline, but there you go. <laughs> You're not actually here for any frivolity. Absolutely You're here to not. correct the record. And no jokes. Save, as E.P. Thompson very nearly said, save August from the enormous condescension of posterity. Uh, you're someone who's spent more time than is necessarily healthy in newspaper archives. Can you tell us, you know, it feels like a relatively new thing, but how far is the tradition of silly season? How, how, how deep are its roots? How long have we been doing this? I mean, I think it's been there forever, really. I mean, you know, it's it's obvious in what you said, you know, that the, there's just less to report. And so, you know, you work your way down the list and that's where you end up with... Uh, I don't know if actually it was in August, but the, my favourite ever headline, book lack in Ongar, about a library strike. Uh, and, and you know, the, the famous headline about, you know, uh, earthquake in Chile, not many dead, which, mm. again, I don't know if it's in August, but you get to those sort of headlines um, pretty rapidly if you're running out of things to print. You can't do what Bono once did on the front of The Independent and say there's no news. Uh, but, you know, is there no news in August? We're about to discover that that's not necessarily the case. Well, indeed. Um, I mean, I think we can sort of work our way uh, backwards uh, from fairly recently uh, back further and further and find more and more of these. So um, two years ago, in 2021, uh, on the 15th of August, a pretty major event happened, and not funny at all, uh, the fall of Kabul. Well, let's go back to the archives and hear a bit of that. Fantastic. The Taliban is in control of Afghanistan. Foreign countries are scrambling to evacuate their nationals, including diplomatic staff from Afghanistan. Members across the House share my concern about the situation in Afghanistan. I was engaged in meetings. The, the, the stuff about me being lounging around on the beach all day, just nonsense. Uh, the, the stuff about me paddleboarding, nonsense. The sea was actually closed. It was a, a red notice. Well, this is a reminder that although the rhythm of our Domestic calendar, the parliamentary calendar, MPs in recess, on holiday, not appearing on media outlets like Times Radio, no parliamentary business, the government grid is empty, doesn't mean that the world is also taking a summer break. 
Indeed. I mean, there's a, there's a sort of deal between the Americans and the Taliban in May 2021, and the initial predictions are that it's going to take, you know, if it happens, six months for the, uh, the Taliban to reach Kabul. But rapidly, those predictions are foreshortened, and it looks like they're going to be there really rather fast. Uh, and certainly by the, you know, the second week in August, they are advancing on Kabul very, very rapidly. And as we heard there, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, um, was on holiday. Uh, I think he would put big scare quotes around holiday. Mm. And uh, he was in the hotel room on the phone to Cobra. Uh, his family uh, were on the beach, but he wasn't. And but the sea was closed, of course. Indeed so. Uh, but nonetheless, um, you know, the question of ministers on holiday is one that we will find our way back to in uh, in all of this. And, you know, the, the, the great pressing sort of moral issue there is that, you know, there are people in Afghanistan, there were people in Afghanistan who had put their lives on the line for this country and we had basically promised that we would get them out and we didn't get them all out. And so anything that looks like anything other than absolute 24-7 emergency footing, you know, was obviously going to be politically pretty dicey. And how difficult is it for governments to make these big decisions during a recess period when people are away? Obviously, the the uh, the, the hardy perennial Lib- Liberal Democrat press releases, po- politicians must be recalled to Parliament to discuss X. In this case, they actually were. But, you know, there was lots of uh, lots of fallout from the Foreign Office's coordination of the response. It's probably the worst possible time of year, with the exception of Christmas, for something to explode like this, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Taliban really weren't thinking it through in terms of what would the impact be on the Foreign Office, which is deeply unfair of <laughs> Foreign them. Office fast streamers <laughs> yeah, having their yeah, holidays ruined. Like the beginning of the, the American Civil War f- falling at the beginning of the British tax year, which was most unhelpful <laughs> to me once. But, um, no, I mean, it's, it's you know, it, things do happen. And, and, you know, I think one of the things that this reflects, in a way, looking back at it, is the way that more and more uh, the calls on politicians' lives, personal lives, you know, uh, have accelerated. I mean, you know, nothing to do with August, but I remember, you know, uh, the Roy Jenkins finding the notion that he might, you know, send his children to anything other than a private school as a Labour cabinet minister being an utter intrusion on his privacy. Whereas now, of course, it's, you know, for mm. years it's been a major issue. And I think the same applies to holidays. Well, it's interesting. Right. So that's one August that very much wasn't study season. 2021, the fall of Kabul and the fallout at home and abroad from that. 2019, Here's one that might be etched on the memories of many politicians. Indeed, I know it is. Let's talk about Brexit. We have to. And the prorogation of Parliament happening that August, of course. This was Baroness Hale of Richmond, then the President of the Supreme Court, declaring the prorogation null and void just a month later. This court has already concluded that the Prime Minister's advice to Her Majesty was unlawful, void and of no effect. The prorogation was also void and of no effect. Parliament has not been prorogued. So, prorogation of Parliament. Jacob Rees-Mogg, then the Leader of the House of Commons, flies to Balmoral that summer. Boris Johnson has become Prime Minister the year before. Easy to forget now, he didn't have a comfortable parliamentary majority at all. Certainly didn't have one for his vision of Brexit. And the big task facing him is how do you get Britain out of the EU by the 31st of October? And this is, the, this is what occupies his summer the first phase of that strategy, proroguing Parliament. Yeah, I mean, he comes into power in late July, I think. And, um, you know, you have this, I mean, it's an example of the, the nightmares thesis that I explore in my book, that you have this this overarching nightmare, as quite a lot of people in Parliament see it, Britain crashing out of the EU in a no-deal Brexit. It's not a nightmare as far as everybody's concerned, but it's certainly driving quite a lot of the politics that summer. And um, on the 1st of August, Sky uh, have a leak of a sensitive slide predicting the possibility of consumer panic and law and order challenges 
exchanges in Northern Ireland, volatility of the currency, and so on. Um, and then on the 18th of August, um, the Sunday Times has the leak of Yellowhammer, which is not even a worst-case scenario, like I think the Sky one, predicting you know food and fuel and medical shortages and so on. Uh, and so you have this really strong sense among some politicians that there has to be some way uh, of this uh, being stopped. And you know you have John McDonnell talking about sending Corbyn uh, to the palace. Mm. You have Dominic Grieve talking about the Queen dispensing you know with Johnson's services if things don't change. And you fantasy know, cabinets headed by uh, oh, Ken Clark and Margaret Beckett and all that sort of. Coming I mean, I, I found a lot, a lot about this from a quite good book you may have read called uh, Left Out, which, <laughs> Very um, good. which I found immensely, use, immensely useful when I was reading about this. Uh, I don't know if you've read it, but um, but no, I mean, there's this constant pressure to try and find a way through. And, and once the idea of a sort of uh, rainbow coalition, you know, is clearly not going to to work, you then move on to this idea uh, that one Keir Starmer, I think, was quite busy working on that summer of, of, of you know a very short term sort of takeover of Parliament for one day in order to stop it. Um, and then you get the prorogation, and immediately you have people parading in the streets with "Stop the coup" placards and so on. I always remember seeing a placard saying "Stop the coup, general election now," which I slightly think you possibly wouldn't have seen in Chile mm. in 1973. But um, but no, there is a there is a deep and serious concern that this is this is going very very far indeed. I mean, you mentioned the Liberal Democrats a moment ago. Ed Davey of the Liberal Democrats said this could break British parliamentary democracy. It would be a coup d'état. Nicholas Sturgeon is talking about dictatorship and so on. And so you know. The, British politics reaches an absolute crisis that summer. There's nothing silly season about it at all. And does the fact that it's summer, that was a very hot summer, you know, a couple of years earlier you have a summer of Tory leadership speculation. David Liddington, I think it is, accuses his colleagues of drinking too much warm Prosecco and spending too much time in the sun. Is there something about the summer that lends itself to political discourse going a bit crazy if it's not sleepy? Yes, I mean we'll come on to 1976 in a minute, but um, I think it definitely does. I think there is something about there's, there's just something about weather sometimes. I mean, just as the the hurricane in 1987 dramatised, you know, the sort of the uh, minor catastrophe as it mm. turned out in the in the city of London. You know, and the hot summer in '76 dramatizes sort of very extreme political tensions at the time. I think yes, I think the fact that this was all playing out, and it's not only the weather; it's also the fact that we're still doing this during the summer when we could be on holiday. Yeah, you know that that underlines it too. That is, yeah. Given that the default British mood in terms of politics is sort of, you know, stories about cars. Yes, exactly, exactly, and sort of you know benign detachment. Um, right, let's head back to 2011. What we have seen on the streets of London and in other cities across our country is completely unacceptable and I'm sure the whole House will join me in condemning it. David Cameron is talking about the riots that spread across Britain in 2011. Now, totally out of the government's control, this one, at least what triggered the riots, the shooting of Mark Duggan uh, in Tottenham by police on the 4th of August. But this ends up sucking up a huge amount of the government's time. Yes, indeed. And um, not only the Prime Minister, David Cameron, <clears throat> excuse me, who we just heard, but the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, and the Leader of the Opposition, Ed Miliband, all break their holidays and all come back uh, because it does feel like a, a very febrile moment and one that we really hadn't seen the like of for, uh, for 30 years. I mean, the poll tax uh, riot in 1989, 1990 rather, not, is not quite the same thing. I mean, it's, it starts, as you say, with a controversy about policing in Tottenham. Um, and then, as you know, these things often do, it, it's a very multi-causal event. It develops into, you know, looting of shops. There's a huge fire of a warehouse in Croydon, mm. which you remember watching burning on the news. I mean, I remember making a documentary series about 
about social mobility that July, thinking, oh, it'll be fine because, you know, we're going to broadcast in September, but nothing huge is going to happen in August, is it? And of course, we then had to, you know, rejig. But no, it is, is a, it, it spreads outside London as well. You have Birmingham and Salford and Manchester and Liverpool and Nottingham uh, all involve five people die. I mean, it's, it's deeply, you know, deeply, deeply unsilly. It's, it's a real rupture moment. And then what I think we sort of slightly lost sight of, it's quite curious. Once you get into all the referenda in the middle of that decade and Brexit sucks in all the oxygen, as we were talking about a moment ago, it's slightly lost sight of. But it looks to me, looking back, as quite a significant moment in those sort of series of ruptures after the financial crisis. Mm, sort of breakdown in trust and social cohesion and all of that sort the, of thing. Fabric, yeah. Well, actually, it's interesting because David, it's sort of not unuseful for David Cameron. It seems sort of crass to say that about riots, but he'd spent so much of the preceding years banging on about broken Britain, you know, society and moral collapse. And here is a big object lesson in cities dominated by the Labour Party, or rather kids who've grown up under Labour government, literally writing in the streets. Yeah, I mean, I think situations like this always help polarise, right? If you're stuck in the middle trying to kind of balance both sides, it's much harder. I mean, you know, people on the left make a pretty, you know, uh, sort of voluble case that this is an expression of sort of deep social sort of, you know, uh, agony over inequality. I mean, it's, you know, and, and people's just sort of sense of hopelessness about getting a getting a decent job. I remember talking to Rowena Davis, who was, wrote a book about Blue Labour, was a Labour candidate later, uh, you know, about rescuing clothes from a burning shop in, in South London and talking to a teenager who had you know, robbed a pair of trainers from JD Sports and said, well, my brother tried to get a job. He did everything right. Can't get a job. You know, we can't buy any trainers. So, you know, why bother? Uh, that was the rights of 2011. Had about four years to the August of 2007. When I, when I started in the summer months and uh, we had uh, the terrorist incident and then we had um, floods, uh, someone said to me in the cabinet office, says, well, at least there's not foot and mouth. And then suddenly there was food and mouth. And then they said then, at least it wasn't avian flu. And then there was avian flu. So we've had a series of challenges to deal with and we'll continue to deal with them. And I think that is really what, uh, what, what the business of government's about. So Gordon Brown has arrived in number 10, finally, in, uh, in the summer of 2007. And no sooner has he broken for his first summer recess, Damien McBride, his spin doctor, writes very uh, very amusingly about this in his book about going to Gordon Brown's first summer holiday in uh, in Suffolk I think it was and thinking you know I'll take Gordon Brown there I'll take a day off heading to the cinema and coming out and his phone exploding with all all of these uh, all of these disasters chief among the foot and mouth it was a bit of a baptism of fire for Gordon Brown but one that he relished I mean also literally in terms of the, the terror attack on Glasgow mm. I mean which was hap happened within I think um, three days or so of, of him taking office um, and yeah he's on holiday for fully half a day I think before he comes back but you know I mean you talked about the riots and it's you know utility in a way for Cameron or bit unintended obviously um, you know in the same way for Brown there is this sense of the crisis prime minister you know who deals with these things very decisively bricks his holiday in this very sort of you know self-abnegating way uh, and then of course that tips into the discussion about whether we're going to have an early election uh there's then the strong tory conference well, and so on well then it's but you know had he gone brown pulled the trigger on that election in the autumn this was the this was very much the start of his campaign it was no time for a novice not flash just gordon those were the and you have you know he relished breaking his holiday such was his seriousness that's what damien mcbride writes in his book and others oh, around them at the time you know he was almost delighted to have the chance to go back to whitehall and coordinate the response 
to a foot and mouth epidemic that had gone so badly for Tony Blair in 2001. Right, absolutely. And I think, you know, had he done the, the thing that they, <clears throat> Anthony Eden does in the much forgotten, you know, 1955 general election, running very quickly on finally assuming office after a very long wait, um, you know, who knows? But it's it's quite possible that he he could have secured a majority. But no, he doesn't. And, and the curious thing is that in the midst of all of that, you have Northern Rock. And then he does recover the crisis prime minister no time for a novice sort of, you know, thing all the way through 2008 when he's dealing with that. But the, the crucial moment when he could have called an election... There's is a immediately after this summer. And there's a wobble. Yeah. And again, it's... a. Uh... Usually in the summer, you'd expect a prime minister to be absent from the stage, so his presence is much more, much more striking. So, Phil, we're now in 1978. We're back in the 20th century. It's August, and the Tories have launched a poster. People actually more closely associate with the following year's general election campaign. Labour isn't working. Yes, exactly. Now, what this is um, so significant uh, for, I think, is the fact that it takes the idea of the dole queue, which has haunted the whole post-war period, and because there's unemployment uh, under Labour, uh, nobody thinks it would get worse under the Conservatives up to the point of three million, of course, which happens within you know three or four years. But it takes that image and completely repurposes it. So uh, it's, it's very much not a sepia image of you know people in uh, gaunt, tight-lit men in caps and mufflers, as Keith Joseph talked about. It's Hendon Conservative Association with handbags and coats in colour, snaking around a car park, right, looking like 1978. I talked to Martin Walsh, who uh, who was the art director on it, uh, and you know he said, "I want this to look like 1978." So it's this really sort of audacious repurposing. But they were quite, Mrs Thatcher was quite nervous about doing this, about drawing attention to the question of unemployment because she knew that things were going to be pretty tough when she started introducing her policies. But it's like a classic example of, Jeremy Corbyn did this a lot as well during parliamentary recesses. You announce, you do something bold in parliamentary recess, your opponents are on the pitch, so suddenly everybody's talking about it. Right, that was 1978. Let's head back to 1976, just a few years earlier. Britain was in the midst of what was then its longest, hottest summer. Water's running low. Racial tensions are on the rise, and it all comes to a head when the musician Eric Clapton makes some inflammatory remarks at a concert, quoting his support for Enoch Powell. Uh, Roger Huddle, who founded the Rock Against Racism movement in the 70s, uh, which included bands like The Clash, uh, X-Ray Specs, told Matt Chorley on this programme a few months ago that Clapton's comments sparked that entire movement. Clapton's outrage at the uh, his Birmingham concert on 13th of August and to fall for all that and all the rest of it about uh, what was going on was just so outrageous. But to actually go on about Enoch Powell, that was the that was the killer. And it comes back to what we were talking to talking about before about weather, Phil. This period. Yeah, I mean, you've had this um, horrible uh, murder on the 4th of June in Southall of a man called Gurdip Singh Chaga uh, and absolutely abominable remarks afterwards by a man called John Kingsley Reid about, you know, one down a million to go. I mean, really kind of, you know, pretty revolting stuff from, you know, somebody who'd been senior uh, in the National Front. The National Front have started doing, you know, you know, worryingly well, as many people would, you know, perfectly reasonably see it in, in, you know, in, in elections and so on. Um, plus, you have the drought. You have this sense that normal boundaries aren't there anymore. We've mm. gone beyond the the normal setting. There's a very evocative play written that summer by uh, Stephen Polyakov called Strawberry Fields about two young fascist environmentalists driving through England, sort of gathering guns for some sort of, you know, uh, rising. But no, I mean, the fact that that, um, that Clapton says this, it, uh, particularly says it in Birmingham, he says at the Birmingham Odeon, which is not far from the, the Midland Hotel, well, where Powell's Powell given that speech in 1968. He, he yeah. says, do we have any foreigners in the audience tonight? If so, please put up your hands. So where are you? Well, wherever you are, I think you should all just leave. Not just leave the hall, leave our country. I don't want you here in the room or in my country, as well as much, much worse, which we of course can't repeat here. 
and that's all happening against the backdrop, as you say, is a really of a really hot summer. The government actually rations water in legislation, emergency legislation passed in the sixth of August. Not often legislation is passed in August, and there's that just feeling, as you say, of normal boundaries breaking down. Yeah, you have uh, you have some punks wearing swastikas, albeit as a you know wind up rather than as a sort of you know ideological advocacy. But it certainly worries people like Stephen Polycoff and for perfectly you know reasonable reasons. And yeah, I mean it's it's. You know, the fact also that, that Clapton, I mean, he's, he's since expressed the shame about this, uh, as one might expect. But, you know, the fact that he'd covered I Shot the Sheriff by Bob Marley. You know, I mean, I spoke to uh, a guy called Michael Riley, who was in the band Steel Pulse at the time. You know, he was a Clapton fan and couldn't quite believe initially. He talked about, you know, people's denial that he'd said this, you know. But then once it became clear that he absolutely had, you know, uh, Michael knew people in the, in the crowd, you know, that's what then galvanises the letter to NME and Sounds and Socialist Worker, which triggers Rock Against Racism which then leads to this concert in Victoria Park in April 1978, where, as you say, you have the Clash and X-Ray Specs and Tom Robinson Band and Steel Pulse. And I think there's something about that which is really significant in terms of setting the ground for where we still are. And as you say, not silly at all. Right, two years earlier, the private armies flap. I have to admit, this isn't one I'd heard of. What, talk us through the private armies flap of August, 20, uh, August 1974. Okay, so the context for this is you've had a second minor strike in early 1974. The Heath government has had its so-called Who Governs Britain election and the country famously says, not you. Wilson comes in with a uh, minority government. But you also have, you know, in the wake of the oil shock the previous year, you have inflation climbing, a sense on the right that trade unions are <clears throat> sort of unbeatably strong, that the new employment secretary, Michael Foote, is going to give them whatever they want, and that therefore people themselves need to organise. And so uh, former commander of uh, NATO forces in Northern Europe, General Sir Walter Walker, recently retired, and I think not quite got over the idea that he's, he's in command of large numbers of people, sets up this thing called civil assistance, which has a lot of light aircraft and all sorts, so who are supposedly going to intervene to try to, uh, try to sort of keep things going if, if the, the calamity comes, the crash comes. Uh, uh, David Sterling, the uh, founder of the SAS, joined the Second World War, sets up a thing called GB75, who are supposedly going to helicopter in over picket lines and keep factories going. Most people, including lots of other ex-army officers, are sort of absolutely aghast at the whole idea. If, you know, if they tried it, it would be total crisis. But it's the funny thing about it is, in terms of what we're talking about, is at the time, it's kind of both silly and scary. Mm. But it's actually stayed in the memory, I think, a lot longer than people might have expected because it's the sort of sense, again, like in 76, of a rupture of going over the line. And that's always a sort of perennial feature of British authoritarianism, isn't it? It sort of always straddles the line between the ridiculous and the sinister. Think of, you know, Mosley parodied as Roderick Spode in P.G. Woodhouse. That sort of thing. Farage is another one. Jacob Rees-Mogg, maybe not, you know, maybe sort of on that sort of spectrum as well. Sort of very much straddling uh, those, uh, those two concepts. Now, let's go a little bit further back now. 1929, Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald shocks the Labour Party with this plea. The question you have to settle, and I have to try to settle, is whether the pound sterling is going to fluctuate so much from day to day that not one of you housewives will know from week to week how much the pound is going to bring to you. That's Ramsay MacDonald, the Labour Prime Minister, not for much longer, asking for his doctor's mandate and asking for the country to support a national government. Tell us about this. Okay, so in 1931, you have unemployment going up and up and up and up in a way that orthodox economics can't quite make sense of and, and wouldn't have predicted. And the problem, of course, with that is that you also have unemployment benefit going up and up and up. So there's massive pressure on government spending, on government borrowing. And you have this ultra-orthodox Labour Chancellor, Philip Snowden, who 
absolutely believes that if he doesn't keep sound money, if he doesn't keep the pound on the gold standard, where it's fixed at $4.86, if you please, uh, that inflation will happen as in Germany in 1923 and there will be chaos and ruin and working people will take it in the neck, get it in the neck. Um, so he absolutely has to keep the value of the pound up, which means he has to keep borrowing down. By August, you have this total crisis where he needs to get, um, he decides, a loan from American banks. But he needs to show that they're going to get borrowing down. The only way he decides he can do that in a vivid and large-scale enough way is to cut unemployment benefits, so landing the crisis on the backs of the poorest of his own supporters. Nine Labour cabinet ministers say absolutely not. The nightmare of you know actually existing unemployment and sort of you know hunger of children seems to them more vivid than the nightmare that Snowden is saying will happen if they don't uh, listen to him. And they refuse to go along with it. And so suddenly, on the 24th of August, uh, Ramsay MacDonald announces, and he and Snowden are founders of the Labour Party, that they are leaving the Labour Party, they're splitting the government, they're suddenly forming a government with the Conservatives and the Liberals in order to get these cuts through. The massive irony being that the cuts then provoke a tiny mutiny in the Navy, which means another panic of investors. We do fall off the gold standard, which sorts the economy out, but there you go. And actually, it turns out, falling off the gold standard is no apocalyptic event after all, as recurs throughout your excellent book on political nightmares, and when they are finally confronted, uh, they're not what people imagine them to be after all. Exactly. Uh, right, now let's conclude with the biggest August event on this list, which actually puts paid to an even bigger crisis that we've forgotten about. The First World War breaks out in August. You can't get further from stories about massive carp than war in Europe. Exactly so. So on the 1st of August, uh, Germany declares war on Russia, on the 3rd of August on France, and on the 4th of August we declare war, which obviously takes us into a pretty nightmarish scenario for the next four years. But it also thwarts another one because what had been building up all the way through uh, the period running up to this is a huge crisis over home rule in Ireland. Um, and in the wake of, of the bill being passed, you have, um, well, passed by the Commons, you have the creation of the Ulster Volunteer Force and you have uh, the creation of the Irish Volunteer Force. Uh, by March, you've got 60 soldiers in the Carrar barracks saying that they're not going to impose home rule on their sort of, uh, I suppose, on their religious uh, brethren or their, their national brethren. Uh, and, you know, effectively this is a sort of mutiny. Um, you've had the uh, the covenant uh, that Edward Carson introduces that people will sort of you know fight effectively to stop uh, home rule. And then the thing that's much forgotten is you have a British covenant and you have this massive, massive rally, 100,000 people or so, in Hyde Park where Alfred uh, Milner, who had been running South Africa for the empire, basically inaugurates this thing. And the slogan is something like, keep your powder dry, you know. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's potential talk, and historian Dan Jackson has done good work on this, of um, people in Britain, at least in their heads, thinking about arming themselves and going to Ireland to fight in the civil war. You have the possibility, the real possibility of civil war in Ireland, which of course we then saw later. And it is the complete inverse of how British politics, or rather Great Britain, relates to the politics of Northern Ireland now, which is to say, basically not at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's absolutely present. I mean, and it's very striking that, you know, the day before we declare war, the leader of the Irish national, uh, Nationalists in the House of Commons, John Redmond, says um, in the Commons, you know, pledges Ireland's support for Britain should we enter the war, you know, and it's, which is, again, a difference from what happens, you know, in the Second World War. But no, it's, it's an extreme crisis we've basically forgotten about. So there you go. August is not where news goes to die after all. Thanks very much to Phil Tinline, friend of the show and author of The Death of Consensus, The Times Political book of the year that's all we got time for today but make sure you like subscribe share and follow wherever you get your podcasts from
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.